1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Hope you've had a great week. I'm here with Andy Green from Rolling Stone, with Brittany Spanos, and with Patrick Doyle. Hey, everyone. Hey. So, we're here today to talk about Chuck Berry. Um, Rock and roll lost its father, and uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't dedicate at least one episode to it. I, I was saying that we probably have about five episodes worth of material, because we're also going to be joined by Bruce Pegg. Uh, who wrote a really excellent biography of Chuck Berry Sort of the definitive one The only one really besides uh, Chuck's autobiography It's called Brown-Eyed, Handsome Man And I think we have uh, Bruce on the line right now Hey, Bruce Hi, Brian Hi, everybody Hey, thanks so much for being here How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, thanks How about yourself?
1: I'm okay So you've been talking to a lot of people about Chuck Berry this week, right? You've, you've been kind of throwing your head back to that space of, of, uh, of Chuckland
0: It's been an absolute crazy week, Brian. Uh, uh, The news came over to me uh, via the BBC World Service about 6 o'clock Eastern on Saturday, and I really haven't stopped since. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about
1: how you got started on your book.
0: Sure. Um, uh, It would have been uh, sort of like 96 or so. Um, At the time, I was uh, a professor at Colgate University, and uh, I was looking for a a book-length research project uh, to do. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out a way to combine my love and also my practice as uh, a musician. And uh, I'd always been a fan of Chuck's. Uh, right from the word go uh, as a child of the 60s i was introduced to him like most people through the beatles and through the rolling stones and so i looked uh, i just had to go online to see what had been written about him and was absolutely stunned to find that there was uh, literally nothing of consequence and you think about how many books were written about uh, seminal figures such as elvis and buddy Holly and all of a sudden it dawned on me that maybe this was the project i'd been waiting for and so i started work on it and 6 years later we uh, we were able to get it published
1: and it's you know i i love the way it puts um chuck into into historical context and and even goes into the kind of the, the racial history of, of st louis uh and the tensions there and i mean how was chuck shaped by his times, it's a big question. But but how was he shaped by the by by his times and in and even the local culture that he grew up in?
0: Well, uh, the the area that he grew up in in St. Louis was an area that was uh, known locally as the Ville, and the Ville was predominantly a, a black middle class um, uh, enclave, if you like. Uh, it had all the best uh, amenities for uh, uh, that. Uh, 1920s black society could 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 get he had a great high school, Sumner High School. It had a a very large teaching hospital, the Home G. Phillips Hospital, all within a couple of blocks of where Chuck was born and raised. So he had that as a, and a very steady uh, uh, middle class background as part of his life. But also, uh, it only took a, a a quick trip from the to downtown. St. Louis for him to understand that segregation was very rampant in uh, in th- that community, and uh, you know uh, uh, things like not being able to uh, ride an elevator in uh, one of the uh, one of the department stores, not being able to go. A very pivotal moment in his life was not being able to go see uh, a movie, a first run movie at the Fox Theater, which is where he eventually. Uh, performed his sixtieth birthday uh, celebration, and the, and the Trump movie, Trump.
1: the movie in question was A Tale of Two Cities, which is <laughs>
0: that's that's correct. Yeah.
1: So so yes, yeah, so this was all. I mean, I, well, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from him that from uh, Rolling Stones 2001 interview with him, and mm-hmm. this is this is there's a bunch in here. There's him deprecating himself quite unfairly, but it's interesting. Look, I ain't no big shit, all right. And then it uh, paraphrases him in Chuck's book. He has always fallen short of true greatness. Nat King Cole's Diction, Maya Angelou's Poetry, Duke Ellington's Elegance, my music, it is very simple stuff. I told you all this before. I wanted to play blues, but I wasn't blue enough. I wasn't like Muddy Waters, people who really had it hard. In our house, we had food on the table. We were doing well compared to many. So I concentrated on this fun and frolic, these novelties. I wrote about cars because half the people had cars or wanted them. I wrote about love because everyone wants that. I wrote songs white people could buy because that's nine pennies out of every dime. That was my goal to look at my bank book and see a million dollars there. That satisfy you? So, <laughs> um, I mean, Bruce, what do you what do you, what do you think of that? I mean, I think Chuck is really selling himself short there, don't you?
0: I yes and no. I mean, he um, he understood, I think, perhaps better than any artist I've ever come across that. Innovation in any art form, whether it be music or uh, the visual arts, doesn't uh, stem from like one single moment. He knew his, his influences, he knew his sources. And what his genius was, it was to put those things together into a package that was not only really satisfying, but also very uh, um, uh, able to connect with the teenage audience of his day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, 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 I think he's self-deprecating, uh, too self-deprecating. Yeah, I mean, because he really did change music as we know as we knew it at, at that time. Uh, but uh, but he's, he's, he's kind of right. He's kind of got a point. His, uh, w- what he did was very simple, uh, but that made it all the more effective.
1: I mean, I would say, and I was saying to these guys uh, before the show, sometimes someone can think they're doing hack work. In other words, they think that they're trying to please an audience, uh, or they mm-hmm. are trying to please an audience. And in the course of doing that, in the lack of self-consciousness that comes with that you can create some of the greatest art that's ever been made uh, certainly the greatest popular art and I, I really think that's what Chuck did I think that he did, he may not have considered himself a poet he may not have considered himself a lot of things but I think he he made some of the, the, the greatest kind of American vernacular poetry in the form of lyrics he he, he set off as, as Bob Dylan recently kind of said it. basically set off an atomic bomb that changed yeah. the way people could you know see music See their lives See the possibilities of American, of America And he, he brought in He claimed um, He claimed Americanness For himself as a black man um, And I think that that's one of the most Fascinating sort of political Things about Chuck Is that he He was he By simply claiming that By simply making a song like Back in the U.S.A. By writing these all-American narratives and claiming them, I think was an incredibly powerful statement. So, anyway, I mean, we wanted to talk a little bit about his musical development because it started. He 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 played a, a talent show. Right? He played a he sang a blues song at a talent show at his, as you said, rather upscale high school, and it was scandalous but very uh, acclaimed by the kids and he also noticed that the dude who played guitar with him got as much attention as him because he hadn't played yet so then that's how he started playing guitar right bros?
0: That's, that's the story that he tells that he played Jay McShann's Confess in the Blues which you know, interestingly enough, was not really a, that one of those down-and-dirty uh, gut-bucket blues from the, the Mississippi Delta, but a more sophisticated version of the blues from Kansas City. Uh, so right there you see the, the, that sort of uh, tension that you, you alluded to earlier in that quote that you gave, where, you know, he wasn't quite, uh, 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 he wasn't a bluesman, but he he certainly appreciated it. And that's just the, really the, like the, the, the first uh, shot, if you like, of his, career um uh, his sister uh, Lucy was a, a, a classically trained mezzo-soprano uh, opera singer, and so he obviously uh, understood some of the more refined and sophisticated kinds of music that were were available, um, and his father was a deacon in the Antioch Baptist Church right there in, in the Ville, so he would have been exposed to Baptist uh, uh, gospel music uh, as well. So you take all that stuff together, and, and another el- element that that he introduced into music too, in his music, and and, and really forms the backbone of rock and roll. Is um, I'm I'm sure I can't tell you the station, but I'm sure he listened to a lot of country music as well that would have been going around at the time. So you know he's always made no bones about the fact that you take you know you take all of that that stuff and put it all together. Um, and, and, which is, again, what, like I said earlier what his genius was and that's, uh, that's rock and roll right there
1: So he started gigging um, at local clubs uh, to, a, to a black yep. audience and he started playing what he called hillbilly songs uh, to, the, to this audience and I wonder if we could play Matt um, Ida Red, which is a song by, by Bob Wills <laughs> um, that, that Matt has ready and, and let's, hear, let's hear that for a minute Um, and now let's play Maybelline by Chuck Berry. And, and we can hear perhaps a similarity.
4: Why
5: can't you be true? Oh,
1: so we, we didn't even play the vocal part of Ida Red, but there's a, a, a it, it's not just a coincidence. I mean, Chuck was directly inspired as he's acknowledged by this song by Bob Wills. And Bob Wills is actually, as a side note, is, it's really interesting that that's Western Swing. And Western swing as an influence of rock and roll, I think, is overlooked a little bit. And even to the extent when I asked uh, B.B. King about where he first heard single note uh, guitar playing and where he and also just actually specifically bending the bending of notes and with vibrato, he actually pointed to the steel guitar player who played with Bob Wills. So yeah, it's a very wow. interesting... It's, there's a really interesting sort of, uh, on, on a lot of levels, musicological and even racial, this racial back and forth. Um, so anyway, so Chuck was playing before he did Maybelline. He was literally... And, and it's kind of lost to history what he was, which country songs he was playing. I think we can probably be pretty sure he's playing Ida Red, given <laughs> that that he went in the studio. So how did he get to, to Chess Records?
0: Um, well... Uh, As you you said, he he had come up up with his own version of Ida Red, uh, and he he went up to Chicago and actually met, or or his his version of the story is he met Muddy Waters uh, at a club in Chicago and said, uh, hey, where can I uh, go and sell this music? And uh, Muddy, of course, being a Chess Records artist, immediately sent him to Leonard and Phil Chess. Uh, He played them the song. And uh, Phil, I, uh, from all accounts that I've heard, was absolutely blown away by it. He thought it was uh, incredibly unusual. He, he heard that big beat that, you, that we just heard, and he saw lyrics that were about you know young love and cars, and he said, "This can't miss." So they brought him <laughs> back a couple of weeks later uh, with Johnny on Johnny Johnson, his piano player. And, uh, and cut Maybelline, and within about a month or two, uh, a copy of Maybelline got into the hands of Alan Freed, uh, the New York DJ, uh, who, uh, uh, let, story goes, uh, played it for two hours non-stop on his uh, evening radio show. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Chuck, uh, even though he'd been playing for quite a few years, now it was an overnight sensation, and Freed took him under his wing, and uh, sent him out on tour, on one of those big old package tours that they used to have back in the day. And, uh, and away the career went.
1: So let's talk about Chuck Berry as a guitar player for a minute. Um, Patrick, Chuck was drawing on earlier stuff, like the guitar player who played with Louis Jordan. What what, what else he was have you...
3: influenced by Charlie Christian. Um, I know that he was influenced by T-Bone Walker a lot, who doesn't get a lot of credit. Yeah,
1: T-Bone but... was the biggest one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then like you
3: said the pedal steel that that double string thing that Chuck really brought in into focus and what became the, the signature rock and roll guitar solo Johnny B good and all those that a double string break the, the way he soloed it had this full sound with the Gibson
1: guitar that really just kind of grabbed you. Bruce what else is there to say about the the kind of the formation of of uh, of Chuck's guitar style?
4: The
0: other thing that you can hear is what he's doing rhythmically. Um yeah uh many years ago i was lucky enough to meet him very briefly and shook his hand but one of the things you immediately noticed about Chuck Berry when you did that is he had a hand that was like a bunch of bananas this his hand was huge his yes. hands were huge
1: i, I would say M- what, mick jagger pointed that out to me uh yeah, when they cuz he this movie jazz in a summer's day which mick and keith are truly obsessed with um uh, that you can yeah. see that that uh mick saw how big his hands were in that movie and said oh no wonder it's so easy for him but so, sorry go on Bruce.
0: Yeah, no, no that's, that's right and so what he was able to do uh, and I'm not like a, 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 a theorist so I can't tell you the exact terms but first thing is he's able to bar, bar chords up down the fretboards which, which makes uh, uh, those simple 1-4-5 uh, progressions that all of his songs pretty much have very very easy to play in any key. Uh, so he was able to play in keys like C and and and, and uh, B flat that most guitarists avoid because they're a little harder to play. So that's the first thing. The second thing, too, is that if you hear Johnny Johnson's piano, Johnny was a boogie-woogie piano, piano yes. player. Boogie-woogie goes back to the 1920s, and it has that really... Uh, it's, uh, a, a driving, undulating bass line, the do 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 that kind of sound. And what Chuck was able to do, because he could bar chords, he, he could play that on his uh, with his left hand up and down the fretboard, so now not only you know you add that rhythmic quality to the double string stuff uh, that you just uh, the Patrick just talked about, and you've got a whole vocabulary for guitar that had never appeared prior to Chuck Berry coming on the scene.
1: The power chords. I mean, he, nobody else was yep. really playing power chords before Chuck. So we were talking about the formation of Chuck Berry's guitar style, and Bruce was very rightly pointing out that. Weirdly enough, one of the main influences on his rhythm style was, in fact, his piano player, Johnny Johnson. Now, Johnny Johnson was also in very much in a tradition of piano playing. And I wanted to play a song uh, called Honky Tonk Train Blues by Mead Lux Lewis for a second. And we'll, we'll hear, uh, listen carefully to what the piano is doing and it may sound familiar. And then uh, the first song where Chuck kind of introduced that is Roll Over Beethoven. Let's play that for a second. What we're hearing is actually the Johnny Johnson had, in between, created a song called Johnny's Boogie that was basically an evolution of uh, the Meadlux Lewis song, right Bruce? That's,
0: that's the way I'm hearing it, yeah.
1: So, it this then goes to an interesting question about Chuck, which is one of the many controversies that surrounded Chuck Berry, which was the extent to which Johnny Johnson was an author of... These songs, And I, I thought the, the, the kind of most tragic Johnny Johnson quote was, no, 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 I didn't write these songs. I, I don't I don't know how to write music. I just played it. And it's like, oh, f- no, no, no. Um, so but it, 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 it is more complicated than that. Johnny Johnson was not the completely the full secret author of, of the music to Chuck Berry's hits. Right. I mean, that that's just actually a, a vast exaggeration.
0: Uh, I, I believe so, yeah, and, and of course, you know, the, the, Johnny eventually took Chuck to court in the um, what was it, late 1990s, early 2000s, and, and the judge uh, tossed the court case out, although the judge tossed it out for the, for the statute of limitations. He said that, you know, the, 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 the suit should have been filed many years earlier. Um, you know, my take on it is that, you know, Chuck, Chuck would have known this music. It would have been around. Um, right. Uh, you know, so I mean, Johnny. I don't think Johnny introduced him to it. Um, my, th- m- uh, you know, and clearly the lyrics with Chuck. I mean, you you only have to hear Chuck talk or read his autobiography to know that, that he's he's writing lyrics the way that he talks and the, the way uh, with the rhythm and 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 uh, the, the the observations that he has. That that's him. It's you know uh, and. Um, I, I think if, if jo- Johnny needs to be remembered, because he certainly did have a part to play in all of this, there's no question in my mind. Um, but I think, really, Johnny's genius was just to, uh, uh, to provide that really driving, great driving rhythm behind Chuck. Was he a sideman, which is, that's how he was eventually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, uh, which is a a very deserved category for a lot of people. Uh, But, uh, you know, was he an arranger, perhaps? He may have done some arranging work, but was he the author? I I, I don't believe so.
1: It seems like he probably... "Quote unquote," wrote the music to "Wee Wee Hours," which is a Chuck Berry blues song. I mean, by the both their account, doesn't that seem yeah. like the case? So there's there's cases like that where, and and even again for for Rover Beethoven, it seems like Johnny Johnson started playing that boogie. Chuck adapted it to guitar and added the lyrics, and in that sense, maybe J- Johnny does deserve credit for helping. Inspire At least the, the Signature Chuck sound Right uh,
0: I, Yeah I mean we, we can certainly Point to Johnny But like I say I don't think Johnny would have been The only way Chuck Would have heard that music I'm sure he would have Been aware of it Right uh, Much earlier than that uh, But I think you know When those two Are on the bandstand At Uh Uh in in East St. Louis in the 1950s I would imagine Johnny would be uh, that would be Johnny's basic repertoire and Chuck would probably well in fact we know that Chuck initially was hired to be Johnny's guitarist and of course the roles got flipped very quickly (laughs) Uh, um, and uh, it's the ultimate uh, it's the
1: ultimate band hijacking of all time possibly
0: yes (laughs) yeah really I mean who, who knows Johnny Johnson today sadly you know because Johnny was a great piano player back in his day and and certainly Eric Clapton and, uh, uh, and Phil Lesh and a lot of other people, I'm uh, sorry, not Bob Weir, felt highly enough about Johnny to ask him to join them uh, on numerous occasions. So, uh, you know, Johnny was no slouch on piano, but uh, was he the author? Mm, I, I, it's it's a tough case to make, I think.
1: Patrick, what were you going to
3: say? One of the points that Keith Richards makes in the Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll movie about Chuck's uh, 60th birthday which is the greatest documentary of all time, but uh, he um, <laughs> ma- makes the point that um, a lot of Chuck's songs are, are in
1: piano wee, keys, strange
3: yeah. piano keys, A-flat yeah. and B-flat, which is why every pickup band had a very difficult time playing with, with him because you'd expect him to play in A or E, but they're in these weird keys, So, and those, those are e- much easier to play on piano. So he was probably in the room as Chuck was writing these songs, so he probably deserves a little more, I think.
0: Right, but, but again, not not to not to argue the point, but I mean, is Chuck would have been aware of those keys? You know, any guitar player would have grew up listening to Charlie Christian and people like that, uh, and and any kind of jazz music would have been aware of those keys. Uh, and certainly, like I say, with Chuck's uh, Chuck's ability to to be able to bar uh, chords on the fretboard, he can move up and down the fretboard. Doesn't play after playing things in first position, where uh, some of the stretches would have been a little harder. He wasn't to a do. big
1: he wasn't a big user of open strings. So there's as Bruce points out in his book, it's it, Keith made a. Um a kind of an offhand remark one day when he was tired with the cameras on him, and that led to this all this thing, to this lawsuit, to everything. But anyway, I love that we're we're caught on the the we're we're deep into the hottest debate of 1956 here. Um, but one of the things that struck me both reading Chuck's book and reading your book, Bruce, and just is, is you know Chuck's f- experience of racism throughout his life, but um, specifically mm. on his first tour um, where he got his first taste of. Of Southern segregation and of Jim Crow and all the, the, the kind of stuff that was still alive and horribly well at that point. Um and and there was there's a lot of different things. There's one moment in his book where he's playing to a literally segregated audience. One side is, is white and the other side is black, and he <laughs> the white side liked Maybelline. And the black side didn't. So then he played wee wee hours, aiming at the black side, and then was trying to find. I mean, it's it's. I mean, there should be a movie of this, by the way. It's just. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And then there were also times when uh, the segregation broke down, and and people would literally uh, of, of of all races would, would end up dancing together, which is uh, like a, a beautiful metaphorical thing that actually happened, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, I mean, he and Little Richard really did uh, amazing things to uh, to advance. Uh, uh, Um, uh, desegregation but just by being themselves and just by being entertainers and showing that uh, um, you know uh, their music crosses racial boundaries and uh, uh, you know the interesting thing to me is that um, chuck initially in his career realized how hard it was going to be for him to break through um one of the things that people uh unless you really know chuck Berry's life don't know about him is that he was a photographer he learned photography from his cousin harry uh, david a videographer
1: um, too unfortunately but yes go on. Well, <laughs> that's, a whole
0: that's a whole different story huh? <laughs> um but one of the things he was able to do he took his own or he he or his cousin harry took his own publicity photos and one of the things Chuck did very quickly was underexpose the photographs or the negatives so that uh, when he developed them, the pictures would show him to be uh, uh, having a much lighter skin than he actually had. Mm. Uh, terrible commentary on, on, on how uh, to break through into the music business in the 1950s. But, uh, you know, in that business, you did what you could to to get your name out there. Uh, and that led to some, some uh, real problems as he went down the south, particularly once he started going... Uh, uh, venturing forward on his own and getting booked into clubs uh, uh, where they were expecting uh, a white artist only to find out that they booked a black man. Yeah, there's literally uh,
1: a story in his book where he shows up for a club gig and they're like, uh, I mean, I, I can't even repeat what they said, but they're like, basically, mm-hmm. we we thought you were a white guy. No, you can't play here. Uh, which right. is, I mean, you know, <laughs> which is about as, as horrific and, and, and blatant as it gets. I was yeah. also struck by in your book, and this has managed to not Stick to Jerry Lee Lewis's reputation, but mm. um, I, I think you know Elvis Presley has been kind of, to my knowledge, falsely tarred as as a, as a racist. I, I really don't think he was. Uh, certainly, certainly, yeah, certainly not outwardly. Uh, and and but unfortunately, uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis uh, was said something terrible to Chuck Berry. So that that's not that 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 was appalling.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll give I'll give Jerry a, a half a pass on that one because you got to remember that Chuck was a good ten years older, and when when Jerry Lee hit in fifty seven or where or fifty eight or whereabouts it was, uh, he was a young punk kid. Out of, out of Louisiana, he didn't know anything um, and so uh, there was uh, he tried to strike up a rival with Chuck about who was going to finish the show when they went on tour with Alan Freed and uh, Chuck to, to, the, to the, way, the way it was told to me by the tour manager on that particular tour was very gracious and said hey Jerry if you want to finish the show I don't care um, uh, but Jerry got a little nasty, and there was a little backwards and forwards between them. And Jerry's father, uh, I, as it was told to me, pulled a knife on Chuck. Uh, but it's my understanding that those two reconciled fairly quickly afterwards, and uh, they, they had a fairly decent relationship. Probably not; they probably weren't buddies or anything like that. But they certainly did, had a fairly good professional working relationship from that point on. I think we're going to
1: take a minute and play some audio of chuck berry himself talking this is from patrick you attended sort of a little press conference at the rock and roll mm-hmm. hall of fame tell, tell us a little bit about it
3: uh they did a tribute concert for chuck in 20, 2012 um tied to his birthday his 88th birthday and uh, merle haggard played and dmc from run dmc it was just basically everyone who could have possibly been influenced by chuck And it you got to see the range of the people he influenced and he came and he played uh, it was not a great set, but he was 88 years old. it was it was just remarkable to see him at, at that time but he he gave a pretty rare interview. I, I uh, was talking to the guy who owns Blueberry Hill where Chuck played for 25 years and he went with uh, Joe Edwards and he went with Chuck everywhere and he told me that that Chuck wasn't you know didn't agree to do this. he wasn't planning to do it and I traveled there just on the chance that it might happen. And um, I guess you know Chuck tried to wiggle out of it right before it happened. Joe was saying, and then Joe had to talk him into it. And I guess that happened a lot. But um, yeah, this so this he gave a pretty uh, amazing press. Con- you know, few journalists in the room, and we just got to ask him a few questions.
1: So here's Chuck on his influences. The actual question was, who, what artists do you love? who are in the Hall of Fame, and he kind of just ignored that question and, and gave his own answer. So uh, let's let's hear that.
5: I have to say Mighty Waters. He was the first one I was introduced to. That's the reason. Uh, Oh, Blue Eyes, because of his statue. And I always thought that he deserved it. I wonder about myself again. But uh, that's true, but I'll go further than that. Uh, I don't want to put anyone other than the other. And because I intend to stay with what is true. uh, Louis Jordan, whose lyrics, I think, I try to be right under his name. uh, as, As you ask me, any others, he would be number, if I was number five or 25, he would be six or 26 and he would be 24 or 23 I'll get it together
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then let's let's play Chuck on kind of why he thought his performance powers were declining it's sort of pondering his future and he he kind of he, he was performing but basically felt that he wasn't quite up to his old standards so let's hear
5: that I'll give you a little piece of poetry give you a song I can't do that my singing days have passed my voice is gone my throat is worn, and my lungs are going fast i see better so so why do you say that because we see i see you we see you every week and every every month at blueberry hill in st louis and you're on stage you're doing your thing everybody's having a great time well, i tell you what, I, that, I, that is, they're having a great time from memory. <laughs> I hope that I can continue to enhance their memory because uh, it looks very dim, like I said, you know. Well, Chuck, was was saying that. Do you feel a retirement is, is on the way? Is that what you're thinking? That shall never be as far as I am able to see a little, mm-hmm. hear a little, and do but a little, I'll want to perform. I, I, I think it's in my father and my own uh, genes.
1: So that was Chuck Berry himself talking a little bit, probably in one of his last, you know, probably his last sort of public yeah. interview, for sure. Bernie, what what do you take away from the reaction over the last week to, to Chuck's death, and and maybe younger people who didn't know much about him, learning about him and reacting. What, what, what's your just general impression of all this?
2: I think that with Chuck especially, it's fascinating to think about how there are much fewer entry points for younger fans to get into him than yeah. it would be. There's less romanticization about him versus like Elvis or versus like Jerry Lee Lewis and a lot of the white artists who did a lot of the same things that Chuck did or ended it later. Um, it's fascinating to kind of think about that and how there isn't that type of legacy built around him in that way anymore, unless you are getting into him through the Beatles and the Rolling Stones or through the artists that covered him a lot, and you kind of are. Wor- it's worth digging deeper. I mean, like even cultural moments like Back to the Future, co- like having Johnny be good and things like that. Like it's stuff like that is sort in, of that in, weird. in which his
1: authorship of the song was stolen. <laughs> yeah, from Yeah, it's him. not even. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> and so that's kind of that was the most fascinating thing because I thought it would be like this. Like more fan, like the fanfare was from the sort of people like like the generation above mine. I feel like, and then it's like less so. It kind of got swallowed up by everything else, but. It's interesting that there's less entry points for him because he is the person. Like when you listen to his music, you hear the entire history of music within him.
1: Yeah, and I, I think back in the the eighties, Hail, hell, hell, rock and roll was mm-hmm. sort of was the big entry point. You yeah, know, and, but if but you're it's like been born so in, long, yeah. If, so, if you were
2: born in yeah. like the nineties, I think there are a yeah. lot less entry points to get into Chuck Berry, unless you're willing to dig deeper beyond like the artists who are who are influenced by him. Totally, Andy. Let's talk
1: a little bit about. The, uh, the latter days of Chuck Berry you know so he he just played and played and played and played on the road one nighter after one nighter yeah
6: I, I saw him four times in the past decade or so of his life and it was very inconsistent you know cause he would he would make he would insist that a pickup band be provided so the so the first show I I, I saw him play about ten years ago it was people that had clearly they never met him before there was just no rehearsal and they looked petrified of him, and they played horribly, and they never knew what song was coming next, and that was, and that was very typical. It was just these endless one-night stands, where if you had the cash to, uh, to pay him, he would show up. But he would, he would travel by himself. He would bring, he would bring just a guitar. And there's some nights he, he was great, and I remember at the last show I saw in the last ten minutes of the show he was staring at his watch the whole time because he was waiting for the exact second <laughs> that he was fulfilling the
1: contract that is uh, as 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 all good performances go yes. yeah that, that's always that's always the sign but patrick you saw him a bunch of time
3: and, and yeah. love some of the yeah, shows yeah funny andy and i were going back and forth there's a great website chuckberry.de which <laughs> which is the archive of of all the tour dates it's it's a great site with all the reviews and um, basically i saw him eight times i was andy and i were at the same show at bb kings in 06 that was amazing it was amazing um the first show i saw was in 2002 basically around 2000 he stopped the pickup bands as much he did it a little bit but it was a lot of the, his st louis band uh, with his family son, members yeah. family members yeah. and his, his daughter ingrid would they would go on the, the road with him and um moments that were unexpected were always the best with with him i think he he broke a string in, in my, the first show i went and he recited poetry um and it was a it was it was just a great i don't i can't remember it but anyway he was he he had amazing moments sometimes he forgot a lot of lyrics and he i think that his memory was not great at yeah the at
6: the very end when i'd see him he would ask the audience to recite the first few lines of each song so that would sort of jump start his brain so yeah. he wouldn't get the first verse then it would kind of trail off i mean it, then his guitar at some shows is very out of tune
3: it was sometimes just... he would play piano, and he was a really good yeah. piano
1: player. Huh, I had no that I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. That's amazing. He, he
3: um he would go over to the yeah. piano often when we would break a string, and he would start playing. And that that was my favorite part of the show. Sometimes,
1: huh? Bruce, did you know he played piano?
0: I did. Yes, I did. And I saw him. I saw him myself a couple of times. I saw him uh, in was it, two thousand one at Blueberry Hill, one of the shows that you you mentioned. Somewhat inconsistent, but boy, there were a couple of moments. I, I remember Johnny Be Good that night was just blistering. Uh, great, great performance of that song. Uh, but then again, he was playing with. You know, his son, Butch, and uh, Jim Marsala, his regular bass player, and Bob Kuban on, on drums that he played with many, many years in St. Louis. So that the, the quality of that show was pretty decent. Um, but I think my favorite memory is the first time I saw him, which was would have been in the early 90s, at um, Geneseo in New York, uh, uh, SUNY, SUNY Geneseo. And uh, so he walked on stage, and he's wearing a pair of uh, white bell-bottom hip huggers. <laughs> now those things have been out of style for thirty years already, but uh, not being one to throw anything away, he uh, thought that was appropriate stage attire. And these things, you know, very very tight around the, the, the his 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 bottom and uh, the <laughs> nether regions and uh, my, uh, my partner at the time nudged me and just elbowed me and said look at his ass <laughs> uh, so I, I started looking at that all of a sudden there is a, uh, a, a wad of cash a bulge in his back pocket cash right there and it's like he just never changed throughout his whole career you know always the cash, cash deal and he's played that entire show with that wad of cash in his back pocket <laughs> hysterical stuff
1: We're going to play Steve Miller talking about his time playing with Chuck. Now, basically, one of the best things that happened to Chuck in this sort of latter-day period of his career is is, like many 50s artists and blues artists, he found that the hippies were pretty hospitable to him. And he started playing at the Fillmore... Uh, backed by Steve Miller and, and Bob Skaggs. And, and here's Steve Miller talking about how they kind of backed him and, and helped bring him to this new audience.
4: We were like the band in the San Francisco scene that was able to like back up the blues guys. Yeah. And Chuck, had, I think, had been in jail for tax evasion. I think he had gotten out of jail. Mm-hmm. And he was a fairly unhappy guy. Yeah. Bill Graham came to me and said, hey, you know, we're bringing Chuck Berry out, and I want you to back him. I want you and your band to back him up. And I said, okay, I'll do it, but only if Chuck Berry will come out here and rehearse for two days. Huh. And so Graham did his magic, and Chuck Berry showed up for two days, and we just had this great time. And... Uh, you know, we went to the barbecue joint around the corner in Fillmore, and ate barbecue, and Chuck said, you know, ain't nobody's going to shave or take a bath until we're done. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, and we rehearsed all day for two days. Drove Graham nuts. He was trying to do business, you know, at the Fillmore, and we were playing all day long. And we had really, I mean, we were doing... Yeah, you know, there's this song he does about this house he's going to build someday. I mean, we were doing some of his most esoteric tunes, we did everything. And um, all of a sudden, Mercury Records said, hey, this is great. We, you know, we want to record this, we want to make a live album. And a deal was struck that afternoon, the, the day of the, that we are going to do the show, and they brought in this funky little board, and all of a sudden this guy named Abe Kesh shows up who is the producer for Mercury. And we're all rehearsed and we're all ready to go and he takes Chuck Berry outside for 10 minutes before the show and Chuck comes back in and he's just like unconscious. He's just like in slow motion. So they went out and had a had a shot or something because it, it was bad, you know. And, and we did, I think we did four sets and we record, re- recorded the album. The album came out pretty good. He got. I think the second night he was a lot better, and um, it was like this. He looked. I mean, there were moments where it was just pure magic, and he he was in the spotlight. And I remember this clear Isabel standing on the stage and looking at him, and he was so handsome, and he looked like a gazelle. You know, I mean, he just looked like he could have sprung off the stage and leaped 22 feet in the air into the audience. I mean, he had that kind of, you know, coiled-up energy, and and he was absolutely beautiful, and we were just doing this great, great, you know, set, and at the end of the set, unbeknownst to us... So
1: that was was Steve Miller talking about his time backing uh, Chuck Berry at the Fillmore, which was one of uh, Chuck's most kind of successful periods... Post um, post fifties and post uh, post jail. Uh, Steve was wrong. The jail sentence for tax evasion came in the next decade. The, this jail sentence that's, was that's for right. was for the the Mann Act, just to correct Steve Miller a little bit. Um, so we've been talking about the life and music of Chuck Berry, and there's so much to talk about. And I, I really recommend anyone who hasn't spent time with the actual music of Chuck Berry, not the covers, not you know just the people influenced by him but actually listening to uh, you know actual Tuckberry it's some of the greatest music of the 20th century. I would I would say start with The Great 28. Yeah. Right guys? The, Which, the, the yeah. Bear Family box great that ca- just came out though has literally
3: everything he's ever done it, it, <laughs> in, including the Steve Miller live album and it's it's amazing.
1: Yes. W- once you've listened to The Great 28 and then you want literally everything 28. he's ever done. <laughs> 28 <like>, discs. <laughs> great you, 28 thousand.
6: Yeah. If yeah. you want
1: The Great 28. But yes no, that would be for uh, the Deep Cuts Connoisseur. Uh, and I'd also recommend reading uh, Bruce Pegg's Brown-Eyed, Handsome Man. And Bruce Thank has you. been nice enough to be with us today. Thanks, Bruce. And Thank it, you very and, much. Yeah. yeah, thanks for being here. And I would also find uh, Chuck's autobiography, which you can find used on Amazon, and hopefully will be actually available for uh, real purchase again soon. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We've been talking about the life and music of Chuck Berry. And we'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on Volume. And you can also download us a podcast on rollingstone.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.